Let's turn our hearts toward the Word of our Lord. Let me give you a few places this morning to save us some time later on. Second uh, Peter, find something in Mark. Second Peter. It's all the way near the end. And then as you walk back to the left, drop something in Second Timothy. And then find your way back to Romans 12. Still uh, pumping the brakes as we go through Romans 12. I appreciated Travis's prayer this morning. I mean, this is a very fruitful vine. There's a lot here to eat. I see no point. We're not trying to set any land speed records working through Romans at all. So I see no need in going past things that we need to sit and meditate on for a while. So we'll continue to marinate. I thought this week we just need to continue to marinate in Romans 12 and let it have its effect on us. But we're still defining what an unhypocritical love looks like, what a genuine love means the love that we're called to, the very love that God himself has. And I think out of all these things, I realize there's difficult things for us to swallow. But I think the most difficult thing for us to understand is where Paul begins, and that is the genuine love and its relationship to sin. I think that we don't realize that it has this moral element that's tied to it. And I really desperately tried to explain that last week. By saying, you know, that God is love, 1 Timothy 4 tells us that. That's the essence of who He is. But God is also holy, and that's the essence of who He is. God is truth. That is the essence of who He is. And so you can't separate that. We always associate love with a feeling. That's, that's the knee-jerk, that's the conformed mind. We see these little kids, and they act right, and they're so sweet, and they give us a hug. We feel love, and what do we say? Mama loves you. Daddy loves you. And that's fine and good, and you should. But you do realize that's love that has been motivated by a feeling. And you know that feeling will pass, especially if you have little boys, because just in a few minutes, they're tearing something up, and they're totally disobeying what you said. And, you know, they're punching their brother or their sister, and that feeling is gone. And perhaps that's when you need to train yourself and grab hold of them and say, Mama loves you. Daddy loves you. Because my love's not based on a feeling. My love is based on something much deeper than that. Then you can spank them, right? So we've got to understand what love truly is. And it, again, it's the love of God. And I told you last week, the, the word literally means a mask. And so it's not just shallow. It's not just for show. It's not just for others to see. It defines who we are. That's the sort of love that we're describing. And Paul says, first and foremost, it has a moral quality. And let me show you, tell you this morning just how important this is. I don't know if you read the news this morning, but the Roman Catholic Church is up in arms because the Pope is very unorthodox in his understanding of Scripture, and he continues to make it okay for gender identity and an okay for homosexuality, including marriage and baptism. And there was an Orthodox Pope, or not a Pope, but an Orthodox priest in Texas that has reared up against him and spoke out against him publicly several times, saying that is not the Orthodox teaching, he says, of the church. 
If he would go on to say, of the Word of God, I'd be much more comfortable with him. But he said, that is not the orthodox teaching of the church. And so this morning, the Pope fired him. He's going to have what he wants to do. And so he is softening this, this understanding that we have of the word love. Because love hates evil. Love hates sin because God is love. And you understand God's response to sin. God's response to sin was to give up His only Son and to put Him to death on a cross. God doesn't have a passive approach to sin by any stretch of the imagination. His reaction is the most powerful and overwhelming reaction anyone has ever had toward evil, wrongdoing, and sin. It cost Him the life of His Son. And so when we understand love, we've got to start there. Love hates what's wrong. Love will always hate what's wrong and always respond to what's wrong. I thought of another passage to continue to kind of chip away at this and, and draw this into your heart. I didn't tell you to turn here, but real quick, run to Ephesians 4 if you have time. I do want to read one passage to you to show you that it's not just here in Romans. This is a clear teaching of Scripture in a number of places. Romans chapter 4, notice verse 14. Ephesians 4, verse 14. Notice what Paul writes. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking what? The truth in love. You see, you can't separate those two things. If you separate them, you've ruined them because they're bound up in the person of God. We cannot deny truth. We can't run from truth. We have to understand that truth and love are forever tied together. And so the first attitude that true love, genuine love, has towards sin is it hates it. It absolutely abhors what is sinful and you need to learn to hate those things that are sinful in your own life. Now head back to Romans 12 and let's go on. Because after we talked about the moral element of God's kind of love, we talked about our attitude toward brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know you've always been able to understand that. And I continue to hear you grow in that, that we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Jesus has done for us. If we're in Christ, we are the family of God, the children of God, and we will enjoy that forevermore. But Paul moves on in the next couple of verses, in verses 11 and 12, and he begins to help us understand what an unhypocritical love looks like toward God. And we need to understand this as well. Because if you ask somebody, do you love God? You know, nobody's got the gall to say, no, no, I don't. Now, I do realize there's a few out there that are atheists or self-proclaimed atheists that don't believe in God. Scripture's clear on those, Psalms 14. They are fools. And so we're not talking about fools this morning. We're talking about everyone else that will not deny the existence of God. And if you point blank ask them, do you love God? What will they say? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> They're actually afraid not to say that. And so they go on to say, I, I, I love God. No doubt. I love God. But when you begin to explore the definition of what unhypocritical, faithful love looks like in the Bible, 
you'll call into question their testimony of the fact that they love God or the fact that they say they love God. In fact, Jesus Himself talks about what love looks like when you truly love God, and it's an action. He doesn't describe it as a feeling at all. Jesus would say in John 14, If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. Jesus said, let me define love for God for you. If you love the Father, you will do what the Father says. It's pretty simple. He goes on to say in John 17, interesting, when he's praying before he goes up into glory or before he's offered as a sacrifice on Calvary, raised from the dead and then into glory, the Son says this, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. The Lord Jesus said that himself in a prayer. Father, I... I brought you glory by doing what you told me to do. He loved, he expressed his love for the Father by doing exactly what the Father told him to do. For Jesus, that was love. It was an action. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling for him. It's just something we do as the people of God. But Paul describes it here, not necessarily the action of loving God, but he describes it as the attitude of loving God. It's not void of an attitude. We don't just do what God told us to do begrudgingly as a robot or something like that. There is an attitude behind our expression of love before God. And look what he says at this first part in verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's Paul's first thought about our attitude toward God as we express our love toward Him. Not lagging behind in diligence. Now, Nobody likes to be called lazy. Nobody. That's a very offensive word. In fact, if you call somebody lazy, here they come. Mouth flies open and you have any idea, they'll start in with their head shaking side to side. All the things that I do, how busy I am, I don't even have time to sit down, sleep, and you're going to say that I'm lazy? That's the way that we start. But you should be offended by that because Scripture is offended by that. The Lord hates laziness, by the way. He talks about laziness a whole lot. In fact, the Bible's word for laziness is the sluggard. He uses 12 references to the sluggard in Proverbs. Let me give you just a few of these so you can see what Scripture thinks about the lazy man. Proverbs 26, verse 14, it says, As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. That's not a good picture. That's supposed to offend you. And that's what God says about the lazy man. It's like a door. He's just flipping and flopping in his bed. That's all he's good for. This one I know you're familiar with. Proverbs 24. It begins in verse 30, but he talks about it several verses through, all about the lazy man. He said, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. So he immediately associates the lazy man with unintelligent. He's just not there. He said, Behold, his, vine his vineyard was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall to protect it was broken down. When I saw, I thought about it. I looked and then I received instruction. And this is what he says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then poverty and want will come upon you. So the Bible is very clear. Laziness is ungodliness. It has no place in our life 
as believers. And so what Paul literally says here in Romans 12, verse 11, our genuine love toward God is this, not lazy in doing our best. Not lazy in doing our best when it comes specifically to the things of God. Now this word in the Greek, if you're taking notes, spoudazo, S-P-O-U, spoo, and then dazo, D-A-Z-O. Most of the time it's translated diligent in the scriptures, but it literally can be translated to labor over. I'm going to work at this. That's exactly what it means. I'm going to work hard at what we're talking about. And so love for God is expressed in this way. I'm not going to be lazy, but I'm going to work hard, labor over the things of God. Now, if you've ever been to Awana's, and it was the first verse that came to mind, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Taught so many kids that passage. But Paul tells Timothy, hey, be diligent, son. Be diligent in handling the word of God so that you will be approved by God and prove yourselves to others. Now, let me offend you for a while. Because you're all about your kids being diligent in a number of things. And they're not bad things at all. We demanded diligence in school. Pages Academy for uh, Higher Learning was a hard place to go to school. I mean, if you had the flu, no joke, she'd give you a Tylenol, you could take an hour nap, and then she'd wake you back up, set you back down at the table, and start again. It did not matter. It was every single day, five days a week, Oftentimes, homework on the weekends, there was things for them to do. It was hard. We demanded that they be diligent in their studies. There were no excuses whatsoever for all those years of their life. And that's a good thing to do, and it paid off because they're bearing that fruit now as they're all still in school. Audrey's still working toward her master's now. Abby's going to be in school a long time. Jonathan's just praising the Lord that he's halfway done. But they've enjoyed the fruits of those labors because they went to a very hard school their entire life. So some of you demand diligence in their academics, and that's a good thing. Some of you demand diligence in sports, and that's a good thing. What do you tell your kids? If you start it, you're going to finish it. You're demanding diligence of them. And when they don't want to go to practice, what do you say? Oh, no. No, no. No, sir. That is not an option. Get your gear. We're going out the door. Do you have any idea, we'll go on to say, how much we're paying for you to be able to play? We accept absolutely no excuses whatsoever. And when they find themselves playing in a game and they get down on themselves, what do we do? Get your head up. You're going to bat again. If you don't shoot, you're not going to score. Quit crying, even when they're little. Quit your crying, we'll say. We absolutely demand diligence. Work hard. Put forth your best effort with this thing, right? Now, here's the part that hurts. 
Do you do that when it comes to their relationship with the Lord? Wonder why we change our tune and our tone when it comes to that. Oh, I don't want to push them. Well, I don't want it just to be done out of, you know, practice. And I don't want them to go through the motions. I just, you know, it needs to be from their heart. So I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to push that. I'm not going to demand that they be diligent in their times with the Lord. Why would you ever do that? Now, we all know that their relationship with the Lord is the number one thing. We'll even confess that as parents. Oh, I just want them to get saved. I don't care if they can play a lick. I don't care if they can pass the class, if they'll just get saved. That's the most important thing to us. And then we'll back up when it comes to diligently pressing them into their relationship with the Lord. Why do we do that? Part of Paige's teaching every day was the kids' time with the Lord. She would sit down with them. And I know others of you do this. And I praise God for that. But she would sit down with them and they would study the Bible together. And she would say, all right, go to your rooms. Spend some time reading, spend some time praying. It was like that every day. And now we're enjoying the fruits of those labors. Because they're all at church this morning and we didn't demand any of that. We didn't call and ask them to do that. In fact, they called on their way. And when I think about where my son is compared to where I am this morning, he went Wednesday night. What 19-year-old boy does that in college living by himself? It was not me. But we're enjoying the fruits of the labor of demanding diligence out of them when they were children. And yes, I confess, it is all of the grace of God. But at the same time, you find these passages that demand diligence in doing our best when it comes to the things of God. Because diligence bears fruit. And God says an unhypocritical love toward me is doing your best. And I applaud you for demanding diligence in school. And I applaud you for demanding diligence on the ball field. I love the ball field. But we need to demand diligence out of our kids. And you go, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite because I struggle myself. Well, here's the passage that's going to get you to. Genuine love for God is a diligence in doing your best. And in valuing your relationship with the Lord so much that you spend time with Him every day. And you say, do you? No. No, I've struggled this week. Extra time has been spent with mom. But that is no excuse. That is no excuse whatsoever. So could we please stop offering excuses and be diligent in things that truly matter? Certainly our relationship with the Lord is of the utmost, right? Peter is absolutely hung up on the word diligence. Go to 2 Peter and let me show you what I'm talking about. Peter's like a, man, he's a, I don't know. He's more like a coach. As I begin to read these passages this week and understand his commitment to diligence for the Christian. And it sounds just like a ball coach to me. I mean, he's encouraging but he's demanding. Notice 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you. Let me begin in verse 5 because he's not going to let go of the word diligence until we get to verse 15. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5. 
Now, for this very reason, and he just talked about the gospel, okay, and every promise that we be given the gospel. Now, for that reason, verse 5, applying all diligence. You see that? All diligence. And he says, these are the things I want you to be diligent at. In your faith, go after moral excellence. In your moral excellence, go after knowledge. You see, we've got to understand some things. In your knowledge, go after self-control. And in your self-control, be diligent in perseverance. And in your perseverance, get after godliness. And in your godliness, pursue brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, what's last? Love. Peter's like, you got to get after this stuff, man. you got to be diligent in these things. Notice verse 8, there's a reason behind it. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make sure about your calling and his choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, he goes on, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You've been established in the truth, which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly body is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. Notice verse 15. Therefore, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to remember these things. See, Peter is absolutely committed to diligence. He said, I'm going to be diligent because I'm never going to stop as long as I'm alive reminding you of these very things to be diligent at. That's my job. I mean, he's just like a basketball coach, Johnny. You didn't change all those years. You just kept teaching the same thing all those years to kid after kid after kid after kid. And Peter's like, that was my job as a pastor. I had to be diligent, training and teaching and training and teaching and training and teaching and pressing you to be diligent in the things of God. He really wanted his flock to get after these things because he wanted you to be sure about your salvation. Isn't that interesting? Because that's not where our surety rests in our days about our salvation. Where does it rest in our day? Oh, I know that I know that I know. What is that? Peter's like, oh, let me give you a different way. You get after being godly, and then you'll be sure that the grace of God has come your way. Be diligent in these things. Turn over to chapter 3. Just a couple more passages. Look at verse 14. It's like the summary of the letter. Okay? 2 Peter 3, look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, talking about the return of Christ, since you're looking for the return of the Lord, be diligent to be found by Him in peace 
spotless and blameless. He's like, let me just bring all this stuff that I've said to a conclusion. Get after it until you see Jesus. Be diligent in these things. Now, you can head to the left and go to 2 Timothy. And let's talk about this a little bit while, a little while before I go on to the next thing. Why aren't we? Why aren't we diligent? Let me give you some excuses of why we struggle with this so much. And, and the first thing is you've got Satan in the world that actively works against your diligence. Who do you think gave you that phone? Who in the world think, who do you think gives you opportunity to do nothing? You got to understand that you have an enemy that's absolutely committed to distracting you, to making you busy, to making you do the things that are unnecessary and insignificant whatsoever. You've got a world and an enemy that constantly presses you toward uselessness. So there's one reason that we all struggle with being diligent. But there's a lot of reasons within ourselves that we're not diligent in the things of God because our fallen nature makes us lazy. And if you're willing to confess, that would be a moment where you'd say amen. We got a fallen nature that makes us distracted. We got a fallen nature that does a whole lot of good things, but never the best thing. But I think one of the most significant reasons that we're not diligent is because we go through periods where we're discouraged. I'm actually going to be tender toward you. Man, we get discouraged. Because we work hard and we work hard and we work hard. And we don't see fruit. Things get hard. Things make us sad. Things break our heart. And we become very discouraged in being diligent toward the Lord. I've shared with just a couple of people in this body. This year, out of the last ten has been my most discouraging year. And if you ask me why, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, I've, I can offer you some excuses. I'm tired. Not just physically and mentally tired. Tired of struggling against sin. Want to go home. And I'm not talking about up the road. Eldon hurt me. That hurt. Seeing y'all, some of y'all struggle, that, that, that hurts. Seeing some leave the church when we got into the sovereignty of God, that hurts. I'm not up here trying to win battles and arguments. I'm trying to keep everybody on the bus until Jesus comes back. And when people leave, it hurts. Watching my mom and dad is discouraging. Fussing with some of my kids this year has been discouraging. And when we get discouraged, we're not diligent. We take those excuses and we just kind of lay down and kind of give in to laziness and have a pity party, don't we? And we just get to where we don't feel like it. But that's why we're in a body that's why we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the two people that I shared that with, 
I know immediately began to pray with me. I didn't just want to share what I communicated that to a couple of people that I knew would pray fervently for me. But we get in those places and it's very hard to be diligent. And then it seems like discouraging things start popping up all over the place, right? I won't go through all the passages for the sake of time, but I, somebody mentioned this week that Timothy was discouraged in 2 Timothy, and I began to read it with that kind of frame of mind, and I was like, my goodness, I've never noticed all these passages in 2 Timothy where Paul was trying to encourage Timothy. Let me just read you one in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6, and you'll see what I mean. Paul says, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. In other words, Paul was telling Timothy, hey man, light a fire. I know your fire has gone out and I need you to kindle afresh what God put in you and get after it, son. And we all find ourselves in those places sometimes and you need to know that's why you're a part of the body and leaving the body is the last thing you need to do. There's two times that you don't need to get lazy in this church and not come and that's when you're struggling with sin if you leave when you're struggling against sin, you've just about committed suicide. That is like the dumbest thing you could ever do. And the second thing is if you get discouraged. You're setting yourself up for a big fall if you leave for any of those two reasons. You're basically leaving the back door unlocked for Satan to have a party in your life. Don't ever walk out with those, for those two reasons. You've got to be diligent. And this is the place where you draw encouragement for being diligent. So the first thing in expressing our love toward God is he's like, don't be lazy and getting after it, okay? Be diligent in these things. Go back at verse 11 so I can move on. Look what he says next. Be fervent in spirit. Now this word, be fervent, zeo, it, it means literally to boil or to bring to a bull. This is your fervency. This is your enthusiasm. This is your fire. And by the way, there's only one preacher in the Bible that the Bible describes him as fiery or boiling over. It's not Paul. It's Apollos. In fact, he was boiling over as he preached, but he didn't understand some things. So they pulled him aside and explained that the gospel of Christ more adequately to him, but you get the impression that he was an enthusiastic pastor. And I find it interesting that Paul's never described that way. Timothy's never described it that way. No other pastor is described that way, but Apollos was described that way. But notice where the enthusiasm goes. Fervent in spirit, and what's the last few words here? Serving the Lord. So it's not talking about enthusiasm in preaching. It's talking about enthusiasm in wearing that apron of a slave. This word is slavery. As far as it's concerned with you, when you tie on that apron and hope it's when you wake up in the morning as the slave of the Lord, be enthusiastic when you reach behind and tie that knot. And be excited for the opportunity to spend a whole day in service to God. Paul's like, that's, un, that's unhypocritical love for the Lord right there. Find an absolute enthusiasm, fervency, and joy in your heart that you have an opportunity to serve the Lord. That's hard to do sometimes. 
Because not all ministry is easy nor fun. Some of it's just plain hard. But Paul reminds us that this genuine love has an absolute fervency for serving the Lord. Now notice verse 12. He, he reels off three things and then we'll be done this morning. And let me read them to you how they are written down in the original language, beginning in verse 12. In hope, rejoicing. In tribulation, not moved. In prayer, busy. That's how he describes the attitude that we should have toward these particular things of God. Now I could spend 30 minutes talking about hope. In fact, the book of hope, and I've told you this before, the book of hope is the book of Romans. Paul talks more about hope in Romans than he does anywhere else. And that ought to make sense to us because this is the gospel. And as he talks about the gospel, he can't stop talking about the hope that we have in Christ because our hope rests in a person. Yes. And we'll be reminded of that hope when we see him return. But we're not there yet because hope is for things that we cannot see. And one day our hope will be set aside because our hope will be realized, but we're not there yet. So Paul's like, let me describe for you what a genuine love for God looks like. In your hope, be rejoicing. In other words, not only do we set our eyes on our hope, but we fill our hearts with joy because of this hope. How often do you do that? I mean, these are the things that we've got to be diligent at. These are the things that we've got to really get after it. And so we've got to train ourselves to be reminded to meditate on the hope that we have in Christ, but not just in that hope, to allow our hearts to be filled with joy because of that hope. A laughing joy and an anticipation of what is to come. If I told you this morning, hey, I got you off all next week. In fact, i got a paid vacation to Disneyland for you, or Disney World for you. All next week, everything's been paid. Grab your kids, got a room, you just take off. I think the most of you, there might be a few of you struggling going out of here, worried about all this stuff, but I think most of you go out here with a heart that's pretty much set on happiness and joy and thankfulness. I can't believe I get a whole week off work, and I can't believe I get a paid ride to Disney, right? Or... You're supposed to meet with your boss in the morning. Time for raises. And you know, he's already told you, it's going to be a good year. And you go bounding in the work, just absolutely can't wait. And you're not disappointed, man. It's twice what you thought it was. And you're just absolutely ecstatic and filled with joy, right? We let the things of the world govern our attitude so many times. And Paul's like, no, 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 for the Christian, it's so much deeper than that. No, our joy resides in the person of Jesus Christ, and our hope is to see His face. Let your hearts be filled with joy. And when you're doing that, and you're on your deathbed, wondering when your last breath will come, you'll absolutely be filled with joy because you realize, I'm about to see Him. And I've been waiting to see him since the day I got saved. We went to church with a brother junior many years ago. Sang in the choir. He 
can never keep his hands down, both of them up the whole time. Sang and sang and sang to the top of his lungs. And when they put him on hospice, he would make the nurse sing with him. And he did win one of his hospice nurses to the Lord. But I never knew a man so filled with joy and so excited about going to see the Lord. You go talk to him, he's, yeah, I'm about to see him. That's what he wanted to talk about. It was like a kid on December 24th. I just can't wait till tomorrow, he would say. And I realize that's a gift of God and that's the grace of God at work in his life. But at the same time, we can be diligent and work up that anticipatory joy in our own heart and have a hope that's absolutely filled with joy to see the Lord. Notice what he says, a couple of more things. In tribulation, Paul writes, persevering. And it literally means remaining. In tribulation, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to sit still. That's how I interpret that. Now, what do we do when hard times come our way? Oh, Lord, get me out of here. Don't want no part of this. Paul's like, be diligent, sit down, close your mouth, be silent, trust, persevere, don't be so easily moved, be diligent. You got to understand that there's a sovereign God behind all your circumstances, all your experiences, all your sufferings, all your sorrows, all your tribulations. I thank the Lord last night that we are where we are with my mom. I don't understand it, but I know it because God is sovereign. And these are peculiar days. These are days that my sister and I get to serve my mom like we never have before in our lives. She's always done that for us. Y'all, I ate three square meals a day. Stumble out of my bed every morning on the way to school and sit down to biscuit and gravy and bacon and eggs. And when I got up, I grabbed my lunchbox, which was absolutely full, and went off to school. And when I got home, she was in the kitchen. And when I went to get dressed, they were all hanging in my closet. And my clothes were folded. That was my life. And now, we're getting to do something we've never done before. And the only thing that I could think to do is thank God for it. Because He is sovereign and everything is for my good and His glory. Therefore, I trust Him and I will sit amidst my tribulations and praise Him. And you've got to be diligent in those things. We're not people, you know how your kids do, because they're kids. They fall down, they scream, scratch their knee or scuff their knee and they start screaming and crying. But we're not kids, we're adults. And when we fall down and scuff our knee, we sit down and we praise Him. Because we trust Him. And we know Him. And He's doing things in our life that need to be done. And so when it comes to tribulation, we're not moved. I'm not moved. Last thing, and I'll leave you with this. In prayer, be busy. That's how it's translated. In prayer, be busy. Now, I bet if I asked you, and I got on to you about this a week or so ago, 
Tell me some things in your life you're busy at. Would prayer be one of those things? I know you're busy. Goodness. I've never seen a generation more busy. I'll just be honest. We were not this busy. And I don't fuss on you because you're busy. I mean, you're just doing what, what you can do. But here's a passage in the scriptures that tells us to be diligent concerning our relationship with the Lord. And one of the things that we're supposed to be diligent at is prayer. Paul says you need to be busy at this. God has commanded His people to pray. The Lord prayed, Paul prayed, and we are instructed to pray without ceasing. I mean, God has shown us that He doesn't do anything apart from the prayers of His people. He doesn't go, surprise, I did something you had no idea what I was going to do. No, He always in Scripture leads His people to pray. When he's, a, he's about to do something, God's got His people praying for that very thing. And then it takes place. And the only thing that we're left to do is praise Him. I don't know why He works that way. Is He sovereign? Yes. Does He work based on the prayers of His people? Yes. How do those two things go together? I haven't a clue. I just know that that's what He does. And so He says an unhindered, or, or rather an unhypocritical, genuine love for me is expressed through people who are busy at prayer. And all we're doing is communicating. We're not telling Him what to do. We're just communicating to Him. Hey, I'm, I'm absolutely dependent upon You, Lord. I need You. Everything that I do, I need You. And that's what I'm trying to tell you through my prayers. I need You for everything. So when we talk about, again, this love, in hope it's rejoicing, in tribulation it's remaining, and in prayer it's busy. I know these things are challenging you. I, I've talked to two people this week and go, I'm so convicted right now. I'm so convicted right now. To which I wanted to say, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Because if you're not convicted, you're dead. You're either dead and you don't know the Lord, or you're dead in laziness and need to wake up. These are convicting passages. These are the things that we're supposed to do. But remember, we're doing them based on the mercies of God. We're not there yet, but we're going to get there because we're not a lazy people. Let's pray.